Hey, happy Tuesday. Thank you so much for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast. We uh, upload new episodes every Tuesday to all your favorite podcast platforms, be it Spotify, iHeartMedia, wherever you get your entertainment online. And we thank you for subscribing to our weekly Tuesday podcast. Uh, new episodes are here, and be sure to tell a friend if you like what you hear. I'm Burke Allen. We're live in our studios in Washington, D.C., and today... We're talking to uh, author and retired colonel Eric Buer. The book is Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. Uh, colonel Buer has a, a book that is due on Independence Day, July 4th. We wanted to get to him first to talk to him about uh, his service, what it was like being there, and his journey as an author. Eric, thanks for joining us on the Big Time Talker. Hey, good morning, Burke. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. So this book takes folks very much behind the scenes of, of what you went through as a, a pilot in in Baghdad and in the Iraq War. But did you as a kid uh, grow up with, with aviation as a dream? I was reading that you're born in California, raised in New England. Were you a, a kid that always wanted to be a pilot? Yeah, Burke, that's... Uh... It's always an interesting question. I don't think so. I, you know, I think I was uh, like every other kid, um, kind of looking for adventure and looking for things that were a little bit different. Um, I, I made my way to a Marine Corps recruiter in a silver tongue devils that they are. And, and, then, <laughs> uh, and they said, Hey, you're, you, Hey, have you ever thought about flying? I said, well, that's, that's great. I think that would be, that would be a great angle for me. And, uh, and so it's, it was kind of the best of both worlds for me, kind of the adventurous spirit of an idea of being a Marine and then the ability to, to train and fly. So you went to school, if I have this right, you went to school at Ohio Wesleyan and you have a degree in economics and then you got recruited. Is that right? So I was actually in college um, and uh, I, I was, again, looking for a little adventure. I went down to see a recruiter in Columbus. Okay. And, uh, it was That was where they found me. So ripe old age of 19, I, I, I shipped out to officer candidate school. A military family or no? No, no. Dad, uh, dad, regular working, working man, and uh, my mom's a teacher, and so a uh, little bit of experience on both sides. But it goes back a couple generations. But not no, no career military. If you go into the Marine Corps, or I guess in any of the branches of service, and the recruiter says, "Hey, you can fly." there's always a great chance it's not going to pan out in there and, and you wind up scrubbing garbage cans or, or whatever. Uh, so how is it that you were able to thread that needle and, and actually get in there and, and train to fly these attack helicopters? Well, you know, it's, um, you know, Jimmy Buffett says some of it's magic and some of it's tragic, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just fortunate. You know, I was just fortunate. I had a, had a recruiter that kind of kept to his word. I, I, I took, I took the appropriate tests. I, you know, I scored the appropriate scores and, and then I rolled the dice. And, um, you know, after I spent some time in Quantico at the basic school where every Marine officer goes, I headed to Pensacola and, uh, fear of failure is a great motivator. Uh, my, my need to achieve was low. I was an econ guy. I was competing against, you know, engineers. And so my, my goal was to simply get my wings and do this best that I could. Eric Buer is our guest on the big time talker podcast, the brand new book ghosts of Baghdad from Ballast Books, releases uh, Independence Day, which is very apropos. So so you find yourself in Pensacola and you start training to fly these helicopters. And, and 
you know, for those of us that don't fly, there's a, a big difference, I understand, uh, in, in flying helicopters and flying airplanes. Do you learn to fly one or the other first? And are you skilled in, in both machines? Oh, good question. We, uh, in naval aviation, everyone begins by flying fixed wing. So everyone flies fixed wing. Uh, they go through uh, primary flight training, then based on the needs of the service, um, you select, they, they push you into helicopter, uh, nowadays tilt rotor uh, and fixed wing. So strike aircraft or uh, other, other type platforms. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, you compete and then uh, on the needs of the Marine Corps, they, they put you where they need you. And in my case, I stayed here in Pensacola, went to rotary wing training, advanced rotary wing training, and then uh, was fortunate enough to be able to select Cobras and, uh, and train to fly the Cobra. So this is probably going to seem like a silly question to you, but as, again, someone who, who has great respect for the military but hasn't served, you talked about Naval Aviation School, and you're a Marine. I always think of uh, my dad, who served as a Navy guy, uh, you know, slogging uh, Army guys and Marine Corps guys and Air Force guys and all that. Is there a huge competition there, or how does that all come together, or does it come together? It comes together, uh, I think, quite well. Um, the Navy runs flight training. He's the chief of Naval Air Training, and we're all Naval aviators, whether you're a Marine, Navy, Coast Guard, and they train a, certainly a fair amount of internationals. So it's a standardized syllabus that uh, they think is the best to breed at the time. Uh, and they put you through that syllabus. And when you're complete, uh, you report to your perspective, uh, back to your perspective services, and they train you in the platform that they want you to fly. So in my case, they shipped me out to Camp Pendleton, California, uh, all Marine. And, uh, and then I never looked back and really never saw the Navy again until I was uh, you know, aboard ship. Was there ever a time in, in all that training that you thought about giving up and quitting? I've, I've always heard that Marine Corps basic training is is the most difficult of the four branches. Don't know that that's true, but uh, at any time in your, your basic or your training to be a pilot, did you think about bailing out? No. No, once you tell, you know, once your mom and dad and grandma and grandpa know you're down there and you're down there and your friends know you're there, again, that, that fear of failure drives you pretty hard. Um, it doesn't mean people don't leave the program for a myriad of reasons. Uh, some are personal, some are physiological, um, some are academic. So there's a lot of reasons to leave the program. None of those caught up to me or they, you know, none of those caught up to me all at the same time. So I felt pretty fortunate to be able to get through the program. And, and when you said physiological, do you mean essentially that, that you get deathly ill whenever you're learning to do all this uh, on air, in air maneuvers? That's true. I mean, everyone feels a little bit of, uh, you do a, a fair amount of aerobatic maneuvering, formation flying, all those things are new to most people. Some people come with an aviation background. I didn't, you know, my first real flight in a small plane was with my, was my first flight with my on wing. So it takes a little bit physiologically. Some folks just phys- just don't adapt to it. Uh, some folks just decide it's not their bag after several flights or, uh, you know, a period of time and they decide to do something else. Eric Buer, our guest, the book is Ghosts of Baghdad. It's available in bookstores everywhere on Independence Day, July 4th this year. And uh, he takes us behind the scenes as uh, he finds himself in the opening days of the Iraq War. So if you would sort of paint a picture of us of, of that time in your life and that time in the country, you were how old when you got the call that said, you're going to Iraq, son? Well, so post 9-11, I 
just reported back into my my unit from a, a year up at the command and staff college as a major. Um, so at that time, I guess I was 35. And what, what is the, the temperature in the country for folks who are listening who may be too young to really remember or may have a different recollection, especially, specifically for you as someone who's serving in the military at that time? What's it like right after 9-11? It's very tense. Um, you know, Anxiety is very high. I think the pressure on everyone to prepare themselves for what we all expect is going to be some type of response. Um, that's certainly up to the, you know, the president and um, and, and the powers that be, but our role was to train. And so we trained and we trained and, uh, and we knew it was coming. We didn't know exactly when we would, um, put ourselves on amphibious ships and, uh, and sail, but we knew it was coming and it was a bit frustrating at times because it's, you feel like you're prepared. You feel like you're ready and you're just, you're waiting, right? It's like a, maybe it's like a horse in the Kentucky Derby sitting in the chute waiting to go. You just want to go. And so that was, that would probably be, Let's describe uh, the feeling in our unit before we left. Are you prepared, though? I mean, can any amount of preparation and drills that you do over here prepare you for what happens when you get there? Absolutely not. Um, what it does do is it, it trains you. It trains you so you have this muscle memory. It's a mental muscle memory, and sometimes it's a physical muscle memory. So when there's stress put onto you, there's, there's conditions that you haven't seen before that you can find kind of like a, like a baseline and you can operate from that baseline. Okay. Uh, so that, that our, I think our training service is incredibly, incredibly well. Um, every day is a new challenge. And so you just have to be adaptable, flexible. So the training helps a lot, but when you get there, it's still what a whole host of new challenges, new experiences, new sensations. Well, the enemy gets a vote. Um, the enemy gets a big vote. And uh, you can train as much as you want, uh, and literally until um, you're fighting an active and very agile and intelligent enemy, then things fundamentally change. Um, you can't replicate that. You can think about it. You can you can talk about it. You can brief to it. Um, but when it actually comes time to to go over the border, uh, and you know you're going to be engaging, you know, enemy positions and targets, it's a it's a whole it's a whole different uh, realm. You um. You flew the Cobra, which, uh, you know, we've, most of us have seen in, in movies or television shows. Um, tell me about that machine. Tell me about the Cobra. Well, the Cobra is amazing. Uh, it, it, I've been flying it for years. Um, I talk about it. It was, you know, it was like an old friend to me. Uh, you, you knew, you knew every switch, you knew every button, you knew every sound. Uh, it, you kind of, it's, Folks who've flown a lot and those types of aircraft will say, and I still say, you, you wear the airplane. In this case, you wear the Cobra, you put it on, it's it's an extension of you. And so I felt exceptionally comfortable in it. Um, it was a very reliable aircraft. Um, and I was just incredible amount of confidence. And I, I knew um, the mistakes I made, which were a myriad of mistakes throughout this deployment, um, the, the aircraft would would be very forgiving and, and help us get back home. So that was a, um, always a big confidence builder. You just said you made a myriad of mistakes. And according to the book, you served, and, and correct me if I've got any of this wrong, in Somalia, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those are not places where I think a myriad of mistakes I, I would want to make. 
Tell me one mistake that you made that, that if you had a do-over, you'd do over right now. <laughs> uh, Burke, it's endless. I mean, aviation is just, all you're doing is recovering from your mistakes. There's no, you're never on altitude on airspeed. Uh, all you're doing is recovering. So it's it's like probably like being a good golfer. You got to forget the last shot. <laughs> uh, you know, I let my wingman talk to you about that, but I dragged them over some pretty bad target sets um, and got them in some pretty deep trouble that I regretted. Uh, and immediately confessed. Um, but you learn every every situation is different. You have to attack every problem differently, and it doesn't always work. It worked one day, it won't work the next day. Um, it's a great thing for us. Uh, we always flew as two aircraft, so there's there's four folks there, four really smart, agile brains telling me, "Hey, don't ever do that again." Or <laughs> please don't ever do that again. And I was, we were very receptive. We were a great team. So I was fortunate in that, in that manner. You talked about uh, the gentlemen and ladies that you served with. Um, paint a picture of them for our listeners um, during that time serving the country. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, as I look back, it's j- just amazing. They were just amazing young women and men from across the country and from across the globe uh, who wanted to be Marines, whether they were 18, 19 year olds working on aircraft, uh, working in the admin department, 18, 19 year olds crew chief uh, flying the back of Hueys, um, or all the aircrew uh, and all the pilots. Um, really, really fortunate. Uh, and they're amazingly adaptable. They're Marines. It's it's a great, there's a oneness in that. There's such a sense of teamwork and inclusion. Um, and that that's that was apparent in my unit. That's been apparent in every unit I've been in. Um, but everyone identifies, identifies himself always first as a Marine. And and they, they look at the mission. In this case, the mission was obvious. So, uh, you know, I, I count us as being blessed with great people. You know, there's always a, a lot of talk about the, the pluses and minuses of a volunteer army. But I guess from what you just said, one of the pluses is that these people really want to be there and they give it 110% every day. Absolutely. And in, in our case, that, that was our case. Um, it's been my case my entire career is that, you know, there's, there's onesies and twosies that, uh, that you need to, you need to keep an eye on and keep motivated, but the rest of them are there because it's all, all volunteer force and they, they want to be something that was in, in most cases, something bigger themselves. They want to be part of a team. Um, and there's really, in my mind, uh, no better place to go and no better place to learn. Colonel Eric Buer, his new book is Ghost of Baghdad. He flew Cobras the opening days of the Iraq War and in some of the, the most troubled places in the planet. Um, it's a true story. It's it, This is one of those those books that is a, uh, a page-turner. So uh, we were fortunate enough to get an advanced copy and uh, it will make you proud to be an American, really proud of the folks that serve over there. And, and I hesitate to ask you this, Eric, but I'm gonna, cause it's my job. Um, can you take me behind the scenes into what I guess was essentially your office in the air, this Cobra into, uh, one of these stressful situations that, that you run into in a combat zone? Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's interesting. I talked to um, I talked to a lot of different aviators, and you know, one of the analogies I use is, and, and today happens to be a Tuesday, but I use Tuesday. You know, every day is a Tuesday um, for me and for us out there. Um, 
every day needs your absolute best. And you don't know when you're going to be called to perform at your highest level. You just don't. Um, on the opening night, uh, we went across the border. It was a large flight of four Cobras, some transport helicopters putting uh, reconnaissance Marines on the SAF-1 Hill. Exceptionally challenging conditions. The weather was terrible. Uh, like a, it, it was a 50-year sandstorm. Uh, we took off. Just as the sun was setting, there was no moon to rise. Very, very challenging situations. And you know, what I saw and what we accomplished collectively after that first night was that we could do this. I mean, this we thought we could never get through that 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 one mission, uh, and we land. And the next the next day, we go out, which is at nighttime. We fly another 11, 12 hours, um, and we think we can never survive the next night. Just do a, a, just a litany of challenges, and and you talk to your team, and you you debrief, and you rebrief, and you go and do it again. And that's and there's there's a lot of individual actions and, and observations I had with a lot of people in different units that I that I that I try to reflect because uh, it's really their story. You just have to see the story through my eyes and my lens, fortunately or or, or unfortunately. But um, what, what I was always the most impressed with is that we'd, we'd fly a day that we thought we could never do again or never survive again, and you debrief it, and the next day or next night you go out and you do it again. Um, that was probably the most impressive part. It's probably the most you know, that's, that's why I have such respect for all of our crews and, and the people I flew with. And so, What's the, the most frustrating part of that job? Is it the politics? Do the politics influence what you do? Is it uh, issues with leadership? Is it, you know, technical challenges, financial challenges? What's the most frustrating part of, of the whole thing? So for that deployment in particular, we we really had no constraints for us. I mean, we were exceptionally well-led. We had a great squadron commander. Uh, we had a great air group commander. Um, we had, we were unconstrained when it came to ordnance. Uh, we had parts are always an issue. Oh, you never expect to, you never expect to fly that much. So you don't really, the supply chain is really stressed to keep up with it. Um, but from a political issue, we were completely immune to it. If there was Things that were happening, I was a major. So if there was things happening three, four levels above me, they insulated us very well, and they just let us execute. You went on to uh, to serve on the staff of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a professor of national security strategy at the uh, National War College um, and as an air group commanding officer. So later in your career, I'm sure you got to see some of the behind-the-scenes politics. Was there Was there anything that surprised you? After you uh, you were no no longer deployed and and you took on that new role with the uh, the Joint Chiefs, anything that surprised you? You didn't you didn't see coming that uh, you know sort of the behind the scenes maneuvering. So I mean I think every organization has uh, every organization has office politics. I, I don't think any organization is immune to it. Um, yeah, I was really fortunate on the Joint Staff. Um, you know I had a great admiral I worked for, two Army generals. Uh, um, they were very no-nonsense leaders, uh, senior Marine flag officers on the joint staff at the time were very like-minded. Um, we were just there to execute. And particularly on the, when you work for the chairman, you know, I was a Lieutenant Colonel and then a, a baby Colonel. Um, you're, you're an action officer. You're, you're working as hard as you possibly can. Um, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing uh, and you're trying to build a team around you. 
Um, there are so many senior officers there. And, uh, you know, I, of course, I had interaction with my direct senior officers. But, um, again, they were they were mission-oriented. I, I didn't really get a sense of politics, particularly on the joint staff. But, again, I was, you know, I was really at the branch chief, division chief level. So I, I was, again, probably probably pretty immune to it. Eric Buer is our guest. His book is Ghosts of Baghdad. You can pre-order it now. It uh, comes out officially on Independence Day, July 4th from Ballast Books. Um, what what would surprise our listeners about what you and, and your fellow soldiers went through during the Iraq War? You know, if, if we didn't serve, we don't know somebody who served personally. What, what would surprise us about what it's like over there? I, th- I think any reader um, would be impressed with the level of professionalism, the dedication. And these aren't just platitudes, just just the truth. Um, you're offered an opportunity to, to step in a cockpit and, and close the canopy um, and you go for a ride. And we, we, you'll spend the next 27 days with me and my co-pilot and, and my wingman and, and other air crew that are in my squadron in our air group. And you get to experience firsthand that something you'd never otherwise have an opportunity to experience. And I think you'd develop an appreciation and respect for the neighbor down the street, um, uh, the kid you went to high school with or to college with, they went off and joined the Marines or they went off and joined the, the Navy or the Army. Um, you, I think you'd look at them probably a different way and you say, oh, that was that was pretty amazing work you did for this country. And, and no one asked them to do it. They, you know, he he and he he and she went there willingly, and they did great work. Um, so, you know, that's that's probably not necessarily um, something that jumps out when you read the book. But I think when you close it at the end, um, I think you'll be pretty happy you took the trip. Was that part of your goal in writing this book? Was to to take the reader behind the scenes and show them what it's really like, and 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 introduce them to some of these these great folks you serve with. It is. I. I it was an untold story. Um, there's people I've dealt with and, and, and I stay in touch with so many of them. Um, it just was an untold story that I knew was not going to be told. And we didn't want to wait. You know, I didn't want to wait till you know, it's 50 years. And then you're writing as if it's a, you know, you know, a band of brothers, you're writing these things that, that people took forever to really encapsulate and understand. So right. that's my goal is to, is really to tell an untold story. It needs to be told. Uh, I'm not done telling the story. Uh, so uh, that's that's my goal. Having spent a lot of time in all those troubled spots, you know, Somalia and Bosnia and Afghanistan and Iraq that are still, you know, screwed up. It's still a mess over there. I wonder, you know, as you look at it in the rearview mirror and you've written about it extensively in the book, you know, is it going to get better in these trouble pockets of the world? Or is this just going to be a continual thing? And eventually, at some point, whether it be every year, or every decade, we're going to need to send our best and brightest over there to, to to do what we can to put a Band-Aid on it. Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, I, I believe, you know, we, we've learned from our, we've learned a lot of lessons. We have a lot of lessons learned. Um, whether we put those into practice in, in 20 years or 30 years from now, I don't know. I um, character of war continues to change and, and it, it morphs and uh, 
threats continue to, to morph. Uh, we just don't have to look too far today to think that, you know, we're, we're not going to have any more peer-on-peer um, conflicts. And you, you look across the globe and, and there's a series of peer-on-peer conflicts that are growing. And you'd like to think that they would learn from history in the past, that we don't have to send, you know, our national treasures across the globe to, to solve, you know, to solve problems. But, um, you know, we've, we've got this idea that we can, we can help. And that's really as simple as it is. We like to feel that we can help people everywhere. It's, we've done it. It's part of, it's, it's the DNA of the nation, right? It's a, it's a country of mutts, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> we see people that are, that are suffering or struggling. Um, we, We'd like to be able to help. And then that often drags us into second, third, and fourth order effects and things we could never anticipate. And that's unfortunate, but um, I believe the future's bright. So I like the optimism. I like the, the fact that, that you've been there and, and you can talk about it from firsthand experience. I wonder when you when you see things go down and you're watching them on TV, just like the rest of us, uh, for example, you know, the the messy pullout in Afghanistan. Is it hard for you, Eric, as somebody who's been in similar situations to not armchair quarterback what's going on? And, you know, sometimes want to throw things at the TV and say, why, why is this happening the way it's happening? Or do you have a different insight having been there and, and known how things can go sideways real quick? What, what goes through your mind when you're no longer there, but you're watching it happen 3000 miles away? It's frustrating. I, you know, any place you've gone and you served, you think you've done done great things, and you think you've done great things for all the right reasons. And it's generally, uh, it's just generally your average your average Joe on the street in that country that you think you're helping him and her and the family. Um, yeah, I try not to get too sensitive about it. Right? I think you know all of us who served there and done multiple tours. I, you know, I think every tour you do or you, you do. Um, in some way kind of peels a layer of skin off you, you know, so, and you don't really notice it. And, uh, and I notice it. And so you bruise easier, right? You're a little more susceptible to infection. And that's what I, I see folks that have spent a lot of time deployed including myself. And you look at those, you're trying to be cynical, uh, but you know, you, you, you have a different perspective and it's biased based on my experiences. So I'd like to think that the, the people making those decisions have a, have the insights, they have the most, current and relevant intelligence and they're making decisions that's best for the country uh, and that's best for those uh, for those countries that we were you know, serving in. I, I don't always believe that, uh, but I, I'd like I'd like to think that's going to be the truth. Colonel Eric Buer is the author of Ghost of Baghdad. The book is due in bookstores on July 4th. People are uh, saying pretty amazing things. I was looking at some of the, the reviews and uh, Jerry Unruh who was the former commander of Top Gun, says Cobra gunship pilot Buer presents a riveting insight into the Corps' masterful execution of war fighting, where warriors engage the enemy face on. Um, I'm going to give you the last word. What is it that you want readers to take away from this book? Is there a, is there a bigger message, or is it really you want to strap them into that gunship with you, into that Cobra, and take them on a thrill ride? What do you want to see a reader take away? That's a, that's a tough question, Burke. I tell you, um, there's a, we talked about an untold story. Um, 
and I I think if someone can read the book, there's there's some other themes that run through the entire book, um, and the idea of the ghosts of Baghdad is that we all face ghosts in our lives, and we all they come in a lot of different forms, and uh, finding a way to kind of face them and then flip the script is critical. I think it's critical for all of us, and I think that's what the journey will will, will tell and show the reader is that. Um, that you can do pretty much anything you need to get done um, if you're if you're willing to take the risks and you have the right team built. So I, that's what I hope the reader takes out of it. Um, there's a lot of other kind of micro lessons learned from me, and I, and I think the readers will appreciate those. Goes to Baghdad, available July 4th, Independence Day, uh, and you can find Eric online and uh, get signed copies in advance as well from the publisher Ballast Books. Go behind the scenes on the opening days of the Iraq war and strap into that, that Cobra gunship. Colonel, thank you for your service and thanks for hanging out with us today. Burke, I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Ghost of Baghdad is the book. Eric Buer is the author. Our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Uh, thank you so much for making us part of your day. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can download new episodes every Tuesday of the Big Time Talker. From our studios here in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. Thank you for listening. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the show. Now, go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.